So when I was in the sixth grade, I went away to sleepover camp for the first time ever. And when I walked into the cabin on that first day, I knew right away I did not belong. All the other girls in the cabin stopped talking and they turned and they looked at me. I was soon to discover that they had all been to the camp before the previous year. They were all from the same hometown and they all went to the same school. I was the only oddball out. So we tried to make it work. The counselor was great. She uh, tried to do some activities to get us all involved together. It just didn't work out. I ended up pretending to be sick and going home from camp early. It's an awful feeling not to belong, isn't it? To not fit in. To not have a place at the lunch table or in the camp cabin. And belonging is a powerful thing, but it's also a very fragile thing. As good as it feels to belong, there's always this nagging fear that something might happen and cause you not to belong anymore. In our experience, belonging is usually based on who we are or what we do. So if you're, if you're an athlete, you belong with the jocks. If you're smart, you belong with the brains. But what happens when you don't make the team or when you fail AP physics? If you have enough money, you can join the country club. If you drive a 65 Mustang, you can join the classic car club. But what happens when you lose your job or you trade the Mustang for a Camry? You can go from belonging to not belonging really fast in this world. Which is why I think people sometimes wonder if they still belong to God. As I look back over my years as a pastor and the many, many spiritual conversations I've had with folks, I think this is probably one of the most frequently asked questions. How can I be sure I'm a Christian? Now, it may actually be the second most frequently asked question. The first is, are we in the end times? To which I say, yes. Are you caught up on your tithes? <laughs> that ends the conversation really fast. <laughs> Close second is this question, how can I be sure? It comes in a variety of forms. Um, am I really saved? Can a Christian lose their salvation? How can I be sure I'm going to heaven? So it comes in a variety of forms, but in the end, it's really a belonging question. Do I still belong to God after what I've done or how long I've been away? Or have I ever really belonged to God? In younger days, I lost track of the number of times I asked Jesus into my heart, just to be sure. So as we continue our exploration of true belonging this fall, let, let's go to the book of Romans one more time, another time, and, and try to get at this question, how can we know if we truly belong to God? Now, we're going to have to dip back into some of the earlier chapters of this letter Paul wrote to the Roman church. We've been working out of chapters 12 through 16, which is the practical section, the very relational section of the book. And we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks to finish things up. But today, let's go back into the earlier chapters, and specifically chapter 8. 
which may be the most loved chapter in all of the New Testament and maybe all of the Bible. We won't be able to cover all of it, but we're, we'll focus on this particular idea. And my prayer is that by the time we're done today, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt if you truly belong to God or not. Now, how's that for a teaser? Okay? So, uh, this is a pretty dense chapter here, Romans chapter 8. There's some big words and long sentences and abstract concepts. So, I'm going to try to keep things pretty simple. Let's put it this way. I'm going to throw you three straight fastballs today. Okay? I know you want to talk baseball, so I'm throwing you a bone and just getting it out of the way. Okay? This is all you're going to get right here. What I mean to say is, I'm not going to try anything clever or fancy here today. No, uh, no curveballs, no sliders, no change-ups. Just three straight pitches right down the middle. So you should have no trouble connecting, OK? How do we know we belong to God? Well, here's the first one. We know we belong because of what Christ has done for us. We know we belong because of what Christ has done for us. Let's look at the opening verses of this great chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I came across an interesting op-ed piece in the New York Times this past Sunday. It was written by a Christian journalist, Jonathan Merritt, and uh, the title of the piece was, We Need to Talk About God. And in the article, he describes the decline of sacred speech and spiritual conversation in our contemporary culture. He first encountered it, he said, when he, when he moved from the Bible Belt to the Northeast. And he found that, that, that the words he used at home, words like salvation and sin and gospel, just didn't seem to resonate with the people he was talking to on the streets of New York. Now, I'm guessing the people on the streets of New York had a few choice words for him that he wasn't familiar with, but that's another story. The most unsettling thing about it, he said, was that he found the same thing to be true even among church people. And in the years since then, he's finding it to be true even in other places around the country. And he's so concerned about this, this lack of, of spiritual conversation that he's written a book on it and is doing a nationwide tour on the subject. As he puts it, we must work together to revive sacred speech and rekindle confidence in the vocabulary of faith. I like that expression, vocabulary of faith, and I want to give you some confidence in it today. So all this to say, Jonathan Merritt would be very happy with this passage we're looking at and the things we're going to be talking about today because there is some serious spiritual vocabulary here. Condemnation, sin offering, flesh, righteousness. Try dropping those at your next cocktail party. See where the conversation goes. 
So what is Paul trying to say here in plain English? What he's saying is that we can be okay with God because of what Christ has done. We can be okay with God because of what Christ has done. Now, let me tell you how he gets there. He begins with that word, therefore, which tells us we have to go back into the earlier chapters to find out how we got here. And so in those first three chapters of this letter, Paul makes the case that we are all in trouble with God. He talks about religious people and the Jews in particular. And he says religious people are in trouble because they, they don't keep, can't keep the laws of God. Now, Judaism, like most religions, had a lot of rules. Ten commandments, for starters, and then another 600 on top of that. Now, those laws were never meant to be rules that would keep people from having a good time. They were meant to be guides that would point us towards a good and long life. Do you want to live long and prosper, God would say? Put God first in everything. Take one day off every week for rest and worship. Be true to your parents. Be true to your spouse. Tell the truth. Don't take what isn't yours. Be happy with what you have. What a great way to live that is. Unfortunately, history has proven that even the most religious people, like the Jews and like many of us, can't consistently keep these good and simple guidelines. To one degree or another, we continually fall short of them and bring hurt and heartache to ourselves and to the world. So religious people are in trouble with God. But then he talks about the fact that irreligious people are also in trouble with God. People who don't have the scriptures, people who may be far from God and any kind of religion. They're in trouble too because they don't even live up to the standards of of their own internal moral compass. Their own standards of right and wrong and good and evil. I mean, let's be honest. Is there any person on the face of the earth who could say they always do the good and right thing every day in every situation all the time? Of course not. We're constantly disappointed in ourselves in small and big ways for not doing what we want to do or for doing things we don't want to do, for failing to be the people we want to be. So Paul says religious people are in trouble because they haven't met the standards of their own religion. And irreligious people are in trouble because they haven't met the standards of their own conscience. So that pretty much covers everybody. No matter who we are, we can't consistently do the things we want to do. And we all too often do the things we don't want to do. Things that we know are not good for us and for others and for the world. And this failure to live life the way it was meant to be lived, to be the people we want to be, is what the Bible calls sin. That's another one of those spiritual vocabulary words that people don't like to use. But not using it doesn't make it go away. Sin is just a three-letter word for the thousands of ways we resist God's love and his ways. And so Paul sums up the whole sad story in chapter 3 with these words. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, between religious people and irreligious people. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin is a problem, not only because it keeps us from living a full and rich life, but because ultimately it leads to our death because it cuts us off from God, who's the source of life. It's a pretty straightforward principle. You unplug your phone, it's going to die before too long. When we detach ourselves from God, it's only a matter of time before we die as well. So that's bad news. But when we reach the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 and the chapters to come, Paul has good news for us. Good news. God loves us so much. He's so eager for us to enjoy life with him that he recognized our need and sent his son into the world to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And the first thing Jesus does for us is to live a perfect life, to keep the law. Jesus lived a perfect life, not just a perfect life. He lived a beautiful life. He didn't just keep the law. He fulfilled the law. He took it to its highest level. He didn't just love God and his neighbor. He loved his enemies. He didn't just not steal. He gave generously to everyone who had need. He didn't just not lie. He spoke the most healing, beautiful, hopeful, truthful words, words that the world has ever heard. Jesus lived a perfect life. He showed us what we were meant to be, what humanity was meant to be like. So the first thing Jesus did was to fulfill the law for us. The second thing Jesus did was to die for us to suffer the consequences of our disconnection from God. All the pain and hurt that we've inflicted on each other in the world, he took on himself, all of it. And he carried it to the cross. And there he suffered the judgment of God against all the evil in the world and he suffered the consequences of being separated from God, which is death. And he did it for us in our place, in our stead. He died so we don't have to. And so that's why when Paul gets to chapter 8, he's got good news. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Jesus lived the life that we could never live, and he died the death that we never want to die so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be free, and to begin to become the people we were meant to be. And so Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, that is good news. That's what we call the gospel. And the reason it's such good news is because it means that our belonging to God is not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ has done. And that's what sets Christianity apart from almost every other religious system on the face of the earth. In fact, it's not really even fair. I don't even like to call Christianity a religion because it just doesn't fit the bill. 
You see, religion is all about do. Do this thing. Go to church. Say your prayers. Study the book. Burn incense. Make a pilgrimage. Give to the poor. Save the whales. Whatever your particular system tells. The list goes on and on. And religion says if if we do enough of the things we're supposed to do and we don't do enough of the things we're not supposed to do, maybe, just maybe it will be enough that we'll be okay with God. But you never really know, do you? So religion is all about do. Faith is all about done. Done. Religion is about oh, what we are supposed to do. Faith is about what Christ has already done. He's fulfilled the law of God. He suffered the consequences of sin. All we have to do is believe that he did it for us. As long as we're tossing spiritual words around here, we might as well go for it. So let me add one more to the mix. We don't find it in this chapter, but Paul uses it other places. It's the word justification. Jonathan Merritt would be really happy with this word. Justification. The act whereby God declares us to be righteous, to be okay, based on the sinless life and substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf. In other words, we are okay with God because of what Christ has done for us. And the reason that's important for true belonging is because it means that our belonging to God is not based on what we do. Because if it is, we'd all be in trouble. But if it's based on what Christ has done, then we are all set. Because he's done it all. And he's done it perfectly. And he's done it beautifully. And he did it for us. So that's the first pitch. We belong to God because of what Christ has done for us. Now, I know what you're thinking. If it took that long for the first pitch, (laughs) we could be here for 18 innings. (laughs) So we will pick up the pace a little bit for these next two. The second pitch, we know we belong because of what the Spirit is doing in us. Because of what the Spirit is doing in us. Let's jump down to verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Now, once again, there's a lot of spiritual vocabulary here. We can't get into all of it. But these are important verses because they speak to the main reason we tend to question or doubt our belonging to God. It almost always has to do with sin. It might be some besetting sin, some bad habit or attitude or behavior that we just can't seem to Beat. And we say to ourselves, if, if, if Christ is at work in me, if I've been set free from sin, why do I keep doing this thing? Maybe I'm not a Christian after all. So it could be some besetting sin. 
Or it could be some sudden sin. Something we do that comes out of the blue. Something awful. Something surprising. We can't believe we did it or thought it. And, and suddenly we say, could I really be a Christian if I could think or do something like that? Could God forgive me after something like that? So it could be a, a besetting sin or a sudden sin, or it could be just a slow, steady drift away from God, away from church, away from faith. Until one day we find ourselves so far away, we wonder if we can ever find our way back again. Besetting sin, sudden sin, slow drift. Any one of those things can cause us to wonder if we still belong to God or if we ever belong to him in the first place. So what Paul helps us understand here is that even though we've been justified by faith in Christ, even though we've been set free from the penalty and the power of sin, we still have this sinful nature resident within us. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And so it's a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. People still read Jekyll and Hyde in high school or college? That old Gothic novel written by Robert Louis Stevenson who was fascinated with, with human nature and with the dual nature of human beings, how a person could be kind and good one moment and, and just awful and fearsome the next. So he wrote this haunting story of a fine, upstanding Dr. Jekyll who, when he drank a mysterious potion, would become a, a frightening, wicked Mr. Hyde. And Paul tells us that something like that is true of all of us, that we have a dual nature. As fallen human beings, we have this sinful nature within us, what Paul here calls the flesh. Now, that's kind of a strange word. It's even stranger in the Greek language. In the original Greek, the word for flesh is sarx. That just sounds bad, doesn't it? It's got to be evil. In fact, I think that word was the inspiration for the name of a certain Disney character named Scar who plays the wicked brother in The Lion King. We all have that sarks within us. But the good news, Paul says, the gospel, is that we now have the, the spirit of Christ with us, living in us as well. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives within you. It's the spirit that stirs within us the desire to want to do good, to want to do right, to, to want to be the people we were meant to be. It's the, it's the spirit of God that prompts us to want to love God and love our neighbors. So my answer to people who come to me and say, how can I be sure I'm a Christian? is that the very fact that you're asking me that question suggests that you already are. Because you wouldn't be asking the question otherwise. It's the spirit at work in your hearts prompting you to long for relationship with God. The fact that you feel remorse over something that you've done that you want forgiveness. The fact that you long to be better and closer to Christ. These are all indicators. The Spirit of Christ is already at work within you. And if the Spirit is at work within you, Paul says, you belong to God. 
And the more you cooperate with the work of the Spirit, the more you begin to become the person you were meant to be, someone who looks and sounds a lot like Jesus Christ. So, as it turns out, there's another spiritual vocabulary word that goes along with this one, so we might as well go for it. It's called sanctification. I can guarantee you won't hear that on the streets of New York. Sanctification. The continuing work of God by which the Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ. And so justification is a positional word. It declares where we stand in relationship to God. And we stand right. We stand okay. We're justified. Sanctification is a process word. It describes the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives, transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And sanctification is a lifelong process. It's not done until we get to the other side and we finally shed this sinful nature and we enter fully into the presence of God in the kingdom to come. There's another word that goes with that. It's called glorification, but we won't get into that, okay? So there's obviously a lot more we could say here about this concept, but enough for now to make the point that one of the ways we know we belong to God is by the witness of his spirit in our hearts. And the very fact that you're here at church today on a rainy Sunday morning, the fact that you're worshiping or seeking God, the fact that you're listening to me talk about the Bible, you are still listening to me talk about the Bible, right? (laughs) It's a good sign. Those things suggest the Spirit of Christ is already at work in your heart. And Paul says, if the Spirit is working within you, you belong to God. So we have these first two reasons for knowing we belong to God, because of what Christ has done for us, because of what the Spirit is doing for us. But this third pitch really seals the deal. We know we belong because of what the Father says about us. What the Father says about us. We'll jump down to verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now if there's one place in this world we expect to find true belonging... It's in our family, right? I mean, they say that home is the place that when you go there, they have to take you in. I mean, if you're in a family, you're in, right? You belong. Blood is thicker than water. No matter what happens, no matter what you do, no matter how far you roam, no matter how long you're gone, you're gone. When, when you come home, they have to take you in. Family's where you belong. Now, we all know that earthly families don't always work that way, but God's family always works that way. In God's family, once you're in, you're in. Once you belong, you belong for good. And Paul uses the metaphor here of adoption to describe our entrance into God's family. Now, adoption was as common in the ancient world as it is today. It was actually quite an honor and a remarkable thing in the ancient world to be adopted because it meant someone outside the family Someone with no claim to the family's fame or fortune would now be brought into the family 
and declared to be a member of that family, and if a son, to be a full legal representative of the family and of the family fortune and name. An adopted child belonged to the family fully and forever. And Paul tells us that on the basis of what Christ has done and the Spirit is doing, the Father declares us to be his sons and daughters. He adopts us into his family. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And by that Spirit, we call him Abba, Father. That was a remarkably intimate, tender word. You have to feel very secure in your relationship with your father to call him Papa or Daddy or Abba. This is the word that Jesus himself used to describe his relationship with the father. And he says that we now get to use that word when we talk to our father who art in heaven. Earthly fathers can fail you, but not this father. He is a good, good father. And when he takes you into his household, into his care, you belong there for good. Because your adoption is not based on what you've done. It's based on what Christ has done for you. It's not based on who you are. It's based on who you are becoming by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if Christ has done it all, and the Spirit is doing it all, and the Father says it's all good, then it's a done deal. You are a child of God. Now, this truth came home to me in a very beautiful way recently, and I'd like to just share the story with you, and then we'll kind of wrap things up. A couple of months ago, I was talking with a, a young couple out in the lobby here after services, and and they had a, a little girl with them, just about a year old, and they were just beaming with joy. And they told me that they had just completed their adoption process and that this little girl was now theirs, and they were just so excited. So when I read that adoption word this week, I remembered that conversation. So I tracked them down this week and asked them to fill me in on the story, and they said I could share it with you. So David and Janet had been trying to adopt a child for a couple of years. And it had become a, a long and rather painful journey, as it often can be. A couple of false starts where they thought they had a child, only to have it fall through in the end. But right about this time last year, something opened up, and a child became available, and they went through the whole process, and, and they actually did receive the child into their home, fully, legally, all those sorts of things. But they understood that even though they took the child home with them, there was still going to be a period of time until the judge made his final decision where the adoption could be challenged by another family member who claimed rights or by the birth parents, one of the birth parents who wanted to challenge the legality of the process. And so as happy as they were to have this little girl home with them, there was always this nagging fear that something might happen and their child could be taken away from them. But then... Just a couple months ago, they finally got to appear before the judge. And he declared the process to be complete. And David said, when the judge spoke the words, this is final and irrevocable, it was one of the best moments of their lives. 
As it turns out, they captured the moment on video, and they said I could share it with you. So let's just watch it for a moment. It's short and it's rough. You can't make out all the words, but don't worry about it. Just watch for the reaction when the judge makes his pronouncement. Petitions are of sufficient ability to raise their child and provide suitable support and education for said child. And the adoption is in the best interest of the child, having considered the need for the child for loving and responsible parental care and all factors relevant to physical, mental, and moral health of the child. Therefore, it is fit and proper that such adoption should take place. It is decreed from this day that Glory Rose shall, for all legal intents and purposes, be the child and then the hearing name petitioners, and the child's name will be changed to Glory Rose Kelly, which shall thereafter be born and used as her legal name. And this adoption is final and irrevocable. Ready? There right. it is. Congratulations. Final and irrevocable. When they heard those words, they knew it was a done deal. Nothing, nobody could ever do anything that would change it. This little girl was theirs and always would be. And did you happen to catch her name? Glory. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Glory. Final and irrevocable. Those are the words the Father speaks over us when we come to him in the name and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Spirit who is prompting us to turn towards him. And when he makes that pronouncement, Janet actually helped me understand this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are as happy and full of joy as the mother and father in that video we just saw. They, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rejoiced over you when you came into his eternal family. So how do we know if we truly belong to God? We know because of what Christ has done for us, because of what the Spirit is doing in us, and because of what the Father says about us. Friends, this is good news. This is the gospel. And you may not hear it a lot on the streets of Boston or New York, but you're going to hear it a lot around here because this is a good news community. The church is a good news community. In fact, Paul tells us that at the beginning of this whole letter, right in the opening words, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the, and then to the Gentile. Everybody, anybody can belong to God. When we belong, we believe. We belong because we believe. It's as simple as that. So there's really only one question left to ask. Do you believe this? Have you believed this? That Jesus Christ lived and died for you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be free? Have you believed that when you come to God in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, he declares you to be his child now and forever? If you have done that, if you have believed 
then you belong to God. Nothing can ever change that. It is final and irrevocable. Thank him for it today and go home with confidence knowing it. If you haven't believed that, if you haven't understood it perhaps or have understood it but never really received it, you can do that anytime. You can do that today simply by saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for making me your child. And it's done, final and irrevocable. If you have done that, but you've begun to doubt it or question it because of something you've done or something you have failed to do or because of how far you have drifted, know that you can come home to your heavenly Father anytime you are ready. Because home is the place where when you come in Jesus' name, the Father always takes you in. Let's pray. As we bow our heads and have just a quiet moment, I'd sure like to give you an opportunity, if you never have understood or believed this, to be able to make that decision today to receive your adoption. So if that's the case for you, if you're understanding and believing for the very first time in a personal way, would you just slip up a hand and look towards me here in the sanctuary or any one of our campuses? Pastors will be watching. Just slip a hand up. Look towards me for a moment, and I can know, and I'll be praying for you in the week to come. Okay, thank you. Amen. A second question with heads bowed and eyes closed. If, if you've been struggling with doubt and distance lately, but you find yourself today wanting to come home to come back to the embrace of your heavenly Father, would, would you just slip a hand up and look towards me for a moment and, and I can be praying for you this week? Just wherever you are, here on a campus. Okay, thank you. Amen, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Just coming back, wanting to say yes. Amen, amen. Lord, we thank you for the sacredness of these moments. This, this time and this place and these words that we've shared together today. Thank you for making it so simple to become your children. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to live and die and rise again for us. Thank you for welcoming us into your family when we come in his name. Pray for each of these who have raised a hand or made a decision today in the quietness of their hearts. May they know today they belong to you absolutely for certain now and forever. And for those of us who are enjoying that confidence, we give you thanks for it again today. And pray that together we might be a people who live out this good news, who live in the freedom of it, and who share it freely with the world around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.